All right. Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to uh, our next installment of our Guidelines podcast series. I'm Brad Elder. I'm uh, at Ohio State, faculty at Ohio State University. We've done a series of podcasts on guidelines, and we have the good fortune tonight of the next in our series. This topic is uh, regarding the paper, Congress of Neurological Surgeons, Systematic Review and Evidence-Based Guideline on Neuroablative Procedures for Patients with Cancer Pain. We have two authors from the paper here with us tonight, Dr. Ahmed Raslan from Oregon Health Sciences University, as well as Dr. Jason Schwalm from Henry Ford in Detroit. Joining me as co-moderator, co-host is our resident co-host, Dr. Meyer Sharma. So uh, welcome everybody to the podcast, and I will turn it over to our two authors who are going to provide a brief summary of the uh, topic before we get into some questions. Yeah, so I think I'll go first, and I wanted to talk a, a little bit about what what prompted this. I mean, I have to say, like, I didn't learn about any of these procedures when I was a resident. I don't think I even saw any of these procedures when I was a fellow. And, and so, you know, there's a huge knowledge gap out there about these procedures, not just amongst our oncology uh, colleagues and, and pain medicine colleagues and palliative care colleagues, but, but even amongst neurosurgeons. Um, and the problem of cancer pain is just huge. So, you know, if you think about um, 600,000 people die of cancer every year in the U.S., and cancer pain is, is just rampant in this population. About 60 to 85% of these patients have pain. And of those patients who have pain, a significant percentage are undertreated or, um, frankly, you know, in many ways, overtreated with opioids to the point that they are not really conscious uh, at the end of their lives and, and really can't be cognitively with it with their families. So, you know, in one study of 100,000 hospice uh, patients, about 7% felt that they didn't have adequate pain control. And that's in patients with good hospice services. So there's a huge need out there. And, and this is beginning to be recognized by our oncology community. So pain assessment and treatment is actually part of um, certification for centers uh, from the American Society of Clinical Oncology as part of their quality oncology practice initiative for being, being a comprehensive cancer center. And, and I think we have a, a lot to contribute. So neurosurgeons have been doing procedures for cancer pain for a little bit over 100 years. And, and kudos to Ahmed for being one of the people who's really carried the torch and wrote a couple of really important reviews about 10 years ago, putting some of these procedures back on the map. And many of us have, have gone and, and learned from our colleagues. You know, I had to have my friend Parag Patel at the University of Michigan proctor me for my first chordotomy. And I think, you know, as a result, we're really trying to look at the literature critically and, and figure out what the role is for these procedures and figure out where the knowledge gaps are that, that we need to move forward. Great. Could you give us a, a little bit of a, you know, that you have different categories in the, at the beginning of the paper. Could you give us kind of a bird's eye view of what each of those are and what you found within each of these categories? 
Sure. You know, I think when we had originally uh, started working on this on this systematic review, we, we really looked at it by procedure. And, and frankly, I'm really thankful to the Joint Guidelines Committee for coming back to us and, and making us rework it, even though it added, you know, several months of work. And I, but I think it's a much better document. And they asked us to rework it. So it's not based on procedure, but what the best treatment is and what the evidence is for different pain conditions. So we've divided it into several different types of pain, starting with unilateral somatic nociceptive cancer pain, uh, craniofacial cancer pain, midline subdiaphragmatic visceral cancer pain, and then disseminated cancer pain. Because the approach to these different diagnoses is, is very different in terms of how we're interacting with the nervous system. So in terms of recommendations and how we looked at it, you know, we we're trying to figure out, you know, what's effective, what, what are the complications? And for those conditions like unilateral body cancer pain, where we've got several, several options, you, you know, what's really the, the best order of those options and, and what's the best procedure for the individual patient? Right. Can you can you give me a, a clinical example? So I, I uh, you know, say midline subdiaphragmatic visceral cancer pain. What patient is that? What? How are they presenting? And maybe walk me through the different possible procedures and what your evidence showed. Yeah. So you know, if you think of midline subdiaphragmatic visceral cancer pain, those would be patients with urogynecologic cancers or you know abdominal uh, cancers, including pancreatic cancer. And what we don't talk about the, in this paper is, you know, sort of the various non-neurosurgical options. And many of those patients are first candidates for number one opioids, but then if they fail opioids or develop side effects, they are candidates for things like celiac plexus ablation or blocks. But if they fail that, you know, then we've got an option of interrupting pain fibers that go up to the brain from that region in the midline by doing a midline myelotomy. And that can be done open in the thoracic spine or can even be done percutaneous with a needle at the foramen magnum. You mentioned that, you know, neurosurgical training maybe doesn't incorporate these types of procedures. If I, if I don't mind, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I think that's that's what you were saying is that is that our training maybe doesn't expose us to this as much. Is that correct? I, I think that's accurate. And unless you're at very few programs, you, you're not going to get exposed to these. I mean, you know, when I think about who's doing these procedures, it's probably less than 20 neurosurgeons in in the U.S. Uh, are, for are, some of them, and for some of them, it's more. But but for some, it's really quite few. Are, are other specialties doing this? Is, is this something that anesthesia is doing some of this? Is, is there a different field that's taking it over? Or is this, are these just that uncommon? Not in the United States. So in Europe, an anesthesiologist would do a cordotomy in countries such as Netherlands or England. But in the United States, this is exclusively neurosurgical. And yes, we do have 20 neurosurgeons doing this today, maybe a little more but there were about zero 12 years ago, maybe one or two 10 years ago. So the critical mass is picking up, I believe. And we didn't have, a, we'll talk about this, but we did not have 
level one evidence, but there is a multicenter randomized controlled trial that's funded by the NIH that's going now for Cordotomy, and there is a trial that's published. So uh, it's in the US, it's exclusively in our surgical. Can, can you tell us more about that trial? You know, I know the scope of the paper, when you write these, just, just to refresh our, our listeners, you, you pick a cut date for, for your literature review. And by the time the publication comes out, that cut date starts feeling like it's pretty far in the rear view mirror. And so, I, so understanding that and understanding that, you know, something that was published November of 2020 probably isn't in this manuscript. But can you tell us about that, about that trial? Because one of my questions did relate to, you know, what's it going to take to get a level one recommendation for a paper like this? Okay. So uh, if you have a level two recommendation for chordotomy, because we were talking about neuroablative procedures, but chordotomy stands alone a little bit different than everything else. It's the most studied procedure. It's the procedure that has the most name recognition. So when people will know what chordotomy is, even though they're not exposed, they read a little bit about it. A lot of the other procedures will be obscure, trigeminal tractotomy, cranial nerve rhizotomy, even myelotomy. So chordotomy is, stands alone. And there is a level two recommendation for that, and there is a level two evidence for chordotomy. The, what's needed for level one is um, large, powered enough multi-center uh, randomized control study for chordotomy against best medical management. And in fact, the study that's designed and funded, it's not actually against best medical management, it's against placebo. Patients will be given uh, a fake spinal tap and then get a little bit of a procedure in the neck, but not a needle inside the spinal cord. Uh, this was designed by one of the authors, Dr. Viswanathan in MD Anderson. So, and he, this is funded by the NIH. So and, that's already underway. And, and patients that receive placebo are, are receiving best medical management also? They will, they will allow switch over after seven days. Seven days, okay. After crossover, if they fail. Before we get too far, I do want to give our resident a, an opportunity to ask questions. Dr. Sorry, Sharma? Um, Sure, Dr. Alda, thank you so much. Uh, and I would like to thank Dr. Rob and Dr. Rasmus for putting this together. It's an excellent guidelines for residents or whosoever is in training. Uh, so I have two questions. One is in DREZ lesioning uh, uh, for unilateral somatic pain, we have included non-cancer pain as well. So will that affect the uh, 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 result or how should we be taking it uh, with cancer versus non-cancer pain? So um, let me answer that. That's a good question, by the way. So this, this particular you know, guidelines is for cancer pain. You can use chordotomy for non-malignant pain, but you have to understand there's two things. Number one, there is a waning effect in pain control, no matter what you do for, for ablative procedures. So we think that the durability of this procedure is around 12 months. Beyond two years, the durability starts, you know, you might have to repeat it. Now, Parag has published a case about persistent chordotomy effect for 37 years. So there is literature out there to suggest that it could be durable. But, but nevertheless, we tend to, to perform the procedure believing that the time point the, upon which the effect will wane is between 6 to 12 months. And all the published literature shows that the visual analog scale will keep climbing back up, it will remain statistically significant compared to baseline, but around six to 12 months. So that's, that's a problem for using it for chronic non-malignant pain. Number two, if you over-lesion, if you hit it hard, like, you, like, like we can do, to ablate completely the spinal thalamic tract, you run the risk of developing the, the seizure. 
So post-chordotomy decision, which is also described. These are the two things that we, we could we consider when we do it for non-malignant pain. However, there are clinical scenarios that will make these two concerns uh, not really important. So I, I remember clearly the first time I did it for somebody who doesn't have cancer pain was someone who is 82, has you know, horrible congestive heart failure, ejection fraction of 15, has a total hip replacement that got infected and replaced three times, and already has a morphine pump and can't go for general anesthesia. Her life expectancy is not long already, and she's not ambulating at baseline. So it was a, considered a good candidate for that. You have to think of it as a palliative therapy, regardless of this is a cancer or non-cancer state. Jason, do you, do you, do you agree? I, I think that's right. And, you know, Meyer, I think when we were going through these papers, you know, some of them are mixed that they cover uh, malignant pain and, and non-malignant pain. And if we couldn't separate out, you know, the patients, with, whether they had cancer or not, we, we ended up not including them. So this guideline is really only about cancer pain. It doesn't include patients with uh, non-malignant pain. Thank you. And the second question regarding training, as Dr. Elder pointed out, I mean, where can we formalize training in these kind of procedures? As you clearly mentioned, it, uh, it happens in only very few centers and very few neurosurgeons do it. So in terms of resident training, how can we formalize training in these kind of procedures moving forward, like in the next few years or something like that? So we've been, you know, as, as past chair of the pain section, I mean, we've done a lot and, and actually... The other thing, uh, Parag Patel and uh, and Kim Birchall and Tipu Aziz and I edited a JNS video journal with videos of a lot of these procedures. We've done a number of courses at national courses as, as well as uh, Dr. Raslin runs a really wonderful functional course at OHSU that residents can get funding to attend. Um, where we teach a lot of these, but but that's those are really sort of the opportunities to learn how to be exposed to this. We also every couple of years we have the the Oakley Fellowship through NREF, which is a funding opportunity to do some advanced training in pain. And and the last person who had that, who's Zaman Mirzada, who's now on faculty at the Barrow, you know, he used that to go to. Kansas City and to MD Anderson in Houston, I think also to visit Ahmed to learn a lot of these techniques. I would also say that, you know, uh, as a general neurosurgeon, you know, if you are a general neurosurgeon, either in the community or in a large institution, it's not really conceivable that you will be performing those. So most of these procedures will be performed for those who dedicate themselves for the pain treatment. Not even all functional neurosurgeons will do that. It's the subset of functional neurosurgeons that will focus on pain. And if you end up being one of those, opportunities for training will, will, will open up. I'm, I'm not refuting the need to have wider exposure for residents at large for these procedures. But while we have not expanded to the level of a baseline or grassroots exposure of all residents to this, we have certainly increased the exposure enough to increase the number of surgeons offering this across the United States, and it's growing. So I think it's a matter of hitting a critical time point, a critical mass before this is this is widespread. Can you give us a sense? Just yeah, those, Meyer, those are great questions. Can you give us a sense of 
of how these procedures, how effective they are for our audience. You know, if if you're at a center that that you may not want to train to learn how to do this, or that you that you don't feel like you'd see enough patients to make it to do that, and are considering referring a patient, what can you tell the referring doctors? What can you tell the patients about how this is going to offset? their pain requirements in terms of opiate requirements? What's the timing? Can you, can you, is there a way of giving an, even giving an overview like that? Or is it just such a case-by-case basis that it's hard to say? I would say that, uh, let's speak about chordotomy. Again, it's the one that you're most likely to do and perform. So if the patient truly has unilateral somatic cancer pain, if it, the pain is below the dermatome of C5 and it's truly unilateral, even if it contains a small component of neuropathic pain, that we made the distinction of somatic because it's, it's not the pain that it is due to neural infiltration, such as brachial plexus avulsion, for example, uh, infiltration, for example. But even if it does, you should expect that the pain will be a substantial pain reduction, 50% or more, within one or two days after the procedure. In fact, the effect should be immediate. Now, there's the amount of opioid reduction has not been well studied, but in, in the randomized control trial that was published by Ashwin, he was able to achieve opioid reduction in almost all patients, but that was 30% of a morphine equivalent dose. So the threshold that was considered successful opioid reduction was not 50%, was 30%. That's still substantial. I think in Europe, they showed that there's a kind of a, a little bit of an inverse relationship between the amount of opioids you're on and the direct impact of ablative procedures on, on cancer pain. So we'd like to get to those patients a little bit earlier. Right now, we get to them too, too, almost too late. But right. still, it's for the right patients, it's very effective. Yeah, I think I think you know the big thing is especially with chordotomy is is you know many of these patients, the palliative care and pain physicians are are used to and, and are very aware of the strong literature in favor of intrathecal pumps and and other sort of implant procedures for treating malignant pain. The nice thing about chordotomy and some of these other procedures is the risk of infection is really low. And so, you know, I've even done chordotomies on patients with open wounds. You know, in general, my feeling is if the patient is a candidate for an LP, they're a candidate for a chordotomy. So that patient is not going to be a candidate for a pump implant, but they may be a candidate for a chordotomy. And I've had a few patients where you just give them you know, much better quality of life for whatever time they have left where they're not completely sedated from their opioids. So is that, you know, is, is that maybe conceptually a fork in the road, the, the pump versus, but maybe we should consider at the point where we're considering a pump, that's where the chordotomy is considered. That's where the neurosurgical procedure is considered. You, you can say that. Unless, is, that too, is that too much of a generalization? As long as there's clinical equipoise, because a lot of time we offer pump for patients with bilateral lower extremity pain mm-hmm. or midline yeah. diffuse pain. So it, it's a, if, if the right, if a chordotomy is an available option for this patient, yes, when you time, think about morphine pump, this is when you should think about chordotomy. Yeah, I mean, the, the, it's a little bit different in that, you, you know, the insurers for given the high expense of these pumps really don't want them being implanted for patients with short life expectancies under three months. 
So they're usually people who have at least a six-month life expectancy. And so a lot of times our core guiding patients are patients with shorter life expectancies than that because of this issue that Ahmed talked about where you really can't count on good pain relief a year out from a chordotomy. Are those studies in existence, the economic impact, the quality of life, you know, those sorts of studies, are those part of this manuscript or were those separate considerations? They're separate considerations. They're, they're not part of the, you're talking about the ongoing randomized trial? Correct. Yeah, they're, they're separate considerations. So uh, I think the economic and quality of life studies would be a level up. We are a little bit of a, in a primitive stage of producing the evidence and making this procedure alive and making sure it's offered to a lot of patients. And then the economic impact will, will follow. Great. Uh, Meyer, did you have other questions? No, Dr. Elram, good. I, I got those two questions. Thank you so much. Well, for our two authors, what did we leave out? What did we not ask about the paper that you think is an important take-home message for our listeners? I think we covered pretty much everything. What I just wanted to, a little bit of a historical note, I think it's important. We chose that date 1980. And the reason we chose the, nine, the date 1980 is because even those procedures undergone within themselves a little bit of change of technique. The conventional chordotomy, which is the chordotomy that used to be done in the US was a fluoroscopy based chordotomy. You inject an intrathecal contrast and you get an AP and a lateral X-ray. And based on that, you do a chordotomy and you infer where the cord is by inferring where the midline is and the dentate ligament. The problem was this, the cord could be pushed or not and your, your needle could cross the midline. Crossing the midline in chordotomy will cause several issues of problem, you know, including sleep apnea, ineffective pain control, and, 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 and whatnot. In the mid-80s, outside of the U.S., because this is the time where opioids was very prevalent and we didn't need to do this, in Europe, they developed a method to do this using CT guidance. And the first paper was published in 1987. So we really wanted to focus on the modern way of doing this rather than in the old way. Rosamov did the first 3D frequency chordotomy in 1965. We wanna leave this literature out a little bit. And this is where we started in 1980. So there is a rationale why we chose to start that way. That's great to have the historical context and how it ties in to the, to the dates chosen for the paper. Well, I, I want to thank our two authors for joining us tonight. That was a, a phenomenal discussion. I also want to uh, commend you both for the work that goes into writing this manuscript and, and the result. It's a, it's a fantastic paper. It's a fantastic read. Even if as neurosurgeons, you don't have patients, you're not going to do these surgeries. It is very important for the clinical practice, especially if you have cancer patients, to have a good understanding of the options available. Of course, I think I can speak for everyone. We hope that Neurosurgical options continue to increase. As you mentioned, we've, we went from one neurosurgeon to 10 neurosurgeons to 20 neurosurgeons over, over the previous years. And, and I'm hoping to see more and more neurosurgeons doing these procedures and helping our, our cancer patients. And, and then by, by nature, the, having a better understanding of the indications for, for these uh, procedures and, and which patients would benefit. So with that, I'd, I'd like to thank our authors. Uh, I'd like to thank Dr. Sharma, resident, for uh, participating and asking questions. And uh, with that said, I want to wish you, wish you all a good night. Thank you, Dr. Arlo. Thank you much.
Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you.